Hello once again, everyone, and welcome to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and each week I take you on a trip down memory lane back 50 years ago where we report on all the hockey news from that period in time. This week, we're looking at the week of August 2nd, 8th, 1970. Our podcast is made possible by the support of our two sponsors. Newspapers.com is the world's largest online newspaper archive, and their support has been crucial to us being able to do the research to bring you these podcasts each week. We're also sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company, located in beautiful downtown Port Coburn, Ontario. The Breakwall Brewery produces amazing craft beers, some of them made from recipes from the late 1800s in the first breweries that were located in Port Coburn. They also produce today some of the best pub food on the planet, and as they begin to reopen, as we've entered stage three in Ontario of our recovery from the pandemic, I'd love to meet any of our listeners at the Breakwall for a burger and a beer. If you were with us last week, you'll remember the stories we brought. We talked about uh, Clarence Campbell talking with hockey writer Stan Fischler about his future plans regarding the NHL. We learned about two Maple Leaf icons, Johnny Bauer and George Armstrong, traveling to Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories and uh, helping with the establishment of a hockey school in that remote community in Canada's Northwest. And we heard some more from former Maple Leaf goalie and goalie coach and scout for the Edmonton Oilers, Ed Chadwick, about his journey through hockey, especially last week when he talked about his junior days and his first games in the NHL. This week, uh, we had a little more hockey news than we actually expected for early in August, and uh, there was some interesting pieces that we'll bring to you this week. Some of the stories we'll talk about, uh, well, we'll have something with Bobby Orr, who was on a cross-Canada tour the last couple of weeks. This week, he was in Vancouver, and he gave us thoughts on several hockey subjects I think we'll find interesting. We learned about a National Hockey League rookie signing his first professional contract, and it was a record breaker. And the NHL has another financial trouble spot with the franchise. We'll tell you which team is having money troubles. Lots of other hockey news as well, so let's get to it right away. Let's start off this week with the news and notes from the past seven days 50 years ago. As we got into August, training camp news started to uh, surface and teams were making final player and management moves to get everything in place for the upcoming season. Like I said, a little more news going on this week than we thought. First item this week, uh, Los Angeles Kings general manager Larry Regan, uh, as we knew, dumped coach Johnny Wilson. He'd been brought up from Springfield of the American Hockey League last season to replace Hal Laco early in the year. Uh, and he dumped Wilson. Uh, Wilson had absolutely nothing to work with with that Los Angeles Kings club last season. And we really couldn't figure out why Regan jumped John, dumped Johnny. And he didn't really dump him. He just sent him back to the American League in Springfield. It had to be disappointing for Johnny Wilson. But this was the the kind of guy Larry Regan is and the kind of guy Jack Kent Cook is. Uh, they don't ask you uh, 
how you're doing. They ask you what you're doing. Uh, apparently, they didn't like what Johnny was doing. Now, the question that became at being asked was, who would replace Johnny Wilson as coach of the Los Angeles Kings? Well, we assume, although there was no reporting to this, that General Manager Regan conducted an extensive search. I don't know how extensive it was because the man that Regan found that would be best to coach the team that General Manager Larry Regan had built for the Los Angeles Kings was General Manager Larry Regan. Regan says he was responsible for building this team such as it was the absolute worst team in the National Hockey League last season. And so we guess he figured that he's a guy to run it. Or it's entirely possible that Regan was unable to find a sucker who would take over this motley crew and guarantee some kind of success or improvement. Some great instant help would have been available in the junior draft in June with the Kings would have been picking third based on where they finished. But that option had long gone by the wayside with Regan having traded the pick to Boston ages ago. Wouldn't Reggie Leach or Rick McLeish or any other of the fine young players drafted in that first round boosted the Kings' overall talent quotient? That would have been a good improvement for the Kings, but right now, their prospects don't look very good, and I don't think there's a coach in hockey that could make a silk purse out of that sow's ear. Johnny Wilson, by the way, wasn't completely put out of work. He was just sent back to his former post with the American Hockey League Springfield Kings. Now, Johnny Wilson is a great guy, and he deserved better from the L.A. organization. Let's hope he can find his way back to the National Hockey League real soon. Speaking of uh, former NHL coaches, Phil Watson. You remember fiery Phil Watson? He coached both the New York Rangers and the Boston Bruins. Always seemed to have problems with various players. Uh, One of them was Eddie Shack when he was with the uh, Rangers. And we had an interview a few weeks with the late Eddie Shack a few weeks ago that uh, uh, Eddie described his relationship with Phil Watson. Well, Phil Watson is back in hockey, found a team that would hire him. That team is the Eastern Hockey League, Syracuse Blazers, and this week, Phil Watson was named their new manager coach. He's a named guy. He'll probably bring a few people into the Syracuse arena for the lowest level of minor league hockey in North America. The Philadelphia Flyers made some news this week. They signed their first draft pick from this summer's amateur draft. He is center Bill Clement, who was picked in the second round, 18th overall by the Flyers from the Ontario Hockey Association Junior A, Ottawa 67s. Bill was a a key player for Ottawa last season, and he scored 19 goals, added 36 assists for 55 points in 54 games. Those are rather modest totals, but then again, we remember that the Flyers had no first-round pick this year. They had traded that away, and uh, so they made the pick of Clement, who's a good all-round player. He's described as strong, physical, And his checking ability at this point in his career is already said by scouts to be at an NHL level. 
Now, Bills for himself says that he has high hopes of making the Flyers right out of training camp this year. And the Philadelphia writers never shy about uh, blowing the horns and extolling the virtues of their athletes in that city. They came right out and said that Bill Clement is the second coming of Bobby Clark. He's just like Clark and will probably be just as successful in the NHL. Uh, One thing about Bill Clement, he's going to be good in the media. This guy has matinee idol looks, according to all the writers in Ottawa and in Philadelphia. He's well-spoken, although uh, a little soft-spoken. He still is very eloquent in how he speaks, and uh, he should be a real fan favorite in Philadelphia, we would think. The Flyers uh, also announced the signing of 23-year-old Bill Lesuk. Uh, he's a left winger who was drafted in June from the Boston Bruins, and the Flyers feel that he has a good shot at making the team. Now, Flyers general manager Keith Allen was very wise in uh, waiting to get Lesuk. He'd been offered uh, a couple of trades by the Bruins where he could pick up Lesuk, and they would have had to give up a backup goaltender, Doug Favell, or other young players. Allen looked at, sized up the situation and decided that the Bruins probably wouldn't be able to protect Lesuk in the interleague draft. And guess what? He was made available and the Flyers jumped on it. Allen, starting his first full year now as general manager of the team, says that he wants to complete at least two trades before the NHL schedule starts in October. Keith said he's been trying to peddle goalie Doug Favell to bring in some scoring help, but as of yet, no one has offered the kind of player that Allen feels would be equal value for trading a goalkeeper of Doug Favell's quality. Former Montreal Canadiens left-winger Jill Tremblay has abandoned thoughts of making a National Hockey League comeback and he is formally retired from the NHL. Jill's will be joining the Montreal Canadiens broadcasting team as an, al- an analyst, both on television and on radio. You remember Jill's had to leave uh, the team when he developed a very severe asthmatic condition which nearly cost him his life. Jill's is in good health now but he's not going to risk it by trying to play hockey again and we wish Jill's Tremblay all the best. Another good guy in the hockey world. Chicago's rookie wizard last season goalkeeper Tony Esposito, the best rookie in the National Hockey League last year. Well, he will represent his team, the Blackhawks. In fact, he's going to be representing the entire hockey world. He'll be the only hockey player at this event. It's a $100 a plate benefit dinner in honor of the late football player Brian Picholo, and the dinner is raising funds to aid cancer research. This dinner will be held in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin at the local Playboy Club. We'll have to keep an eye on this and see if any headlines come out of this soiree. Frank Butel has been a commentator on the Minnesota North Star telecast for the past three years, but this season he's leaving that post. Frank has been also doing commentary for the Minnesota Twins American League Baseball team the past couple years, but now it seems that a sponsor conflict will prevent him from returning to the hockey broadcasts. There's no word yet on who the North Stars will find to replace Frank on the telecasts. 
A little bit of news from the Toronto Maple Leafs this week. Uh, they announced the signing of star right-winger Ronnie Ellis. He signed a one-year contract and the terms were not disclosed, but we understand Ron was given a sizable raise over what he earned last season, which was his best in the NHL. Ron, however, has been having a lot of... Uh, uh, conflicts, I guess you could say, in his life. And he's not sure he even wanted to continue playing hockey. But General Manager Jim Gregory and King Clancy sat down with Ron this uh, summer. And they've convinced Ron that his future is in hockey. And he'll be back with the Leafs for at least one more season. The Leafs also announced that their training camp will open at Maple Leaf Gardens on September 9th. The Pittsburgh Penguins have a little bit of news this week. Uh, They have purchased the contract of center Rod Zane, who's 24 years old, from the American Hockey League Baltimore Clippers. They hope he can at least partially replace last year's rookie sensation, Michelle Briere, who was severely injured in an automobile accident in May. General Manager Coach Red Kelly had been hoping that young Rick Kessel would slide into Briere's spot, but Kessel broke an ankle while water skiing near his home in Oshawa, Ontario just in the past couple of weeks, and Kelly is not counting on him to even be able to make the team. One player that Penguins general manager coach Red Kelly is counting on is winger Lowell McDonald, who was uh, drafted from the Los Angeles Kings during the summer. Lowell had retired partway through last season over a fear of flying and various other maladies he said was affecting him, but he's advised the Penguins he's willing to come out of retirement and he expects to have great success playing for the former Kings coach in Pittsburgh. McDonald is a winger who has a really deft touch around the net and if they can keep him healthy and happy he could prove to be a real asset for the Pittsburgh Penguins who are going to need all they can ha- all the help they can get on the forward line. Interesting note from the International Hockey League. Now in the hierarchy of hockey's minor leagues The bottom league is basically the Eastern League. Then you have the International League. Then the Central League, the American Hockey League, and Western Leagues pretty much on a par. But they're more and more becoming uh, more or less professional in these lower two minor leagues. Anyway, the International Hockey League will not operate a franchise in Columbus, Ohio this season. They just can't make it work financially. Columbus was thought to be a good hockey town, but it's more of a college hockey town than a professional hockey town. Mounting debts has forced the Columbus Checkers out of existence, and there'll be no professional or even semi-professional hockey in Columbus for the foreseeable future. Brief note from the Chicago Blackhawks. Uh, They've signed former Cornell University most valuable player, defenseman Dan Lodbo, who is a native of Thorold, Ontario. And the Hawks have high hopes that this college player can make the team out of training camp. Lodbo is a good-sized kid, played well. We remember him playing junior hockey in the uh, Niagara region, and we think he's got a shot at making the NHL. Vancouver Canucks general manager Bud Poyle, who never met a microphone he didn't like, was in Calgary this week where the Canucks will hold their training camp 
and he was uh, drumming up interest for the training camp in Alberta. Well, Poyle told reporters that Calgary and Edmonton should both experience a return to professional hockey and they should be in the Western Hockey League. A likely scenario being floated by writers in Alberta in both uh, of the two main cities in those in that province said that the Canucks will establish their number one farm team in Calgary. Right now, it's way over in the east uh, in American Hockey League, Rochester. And a likely scenario will be the Philadelphia Flyers will move their number one farm team from Quebec, where the Aces play in the AHL, to Edmonton. Bud Poyle figures a pro hockey will return to Edmonton in about two years. Little did he know that pro hockey would return to Edmonton in about two years, but not in the form that Bud Poyle thought it would return. Poyle was also upset with the Canucks' second-round amateur draft pick, defenseman Jim Hargraves, Jim, of course, as you know, played for the Canadian national team. He's a big, tough defenseman who most scouts feel has an NHL future. But Hargraves, as a second-round pick, wants a lot more money than Poyle thinks he's worth as a second-round pick. Hargraves has had hired a lawyer to represent him in contract talks, and Poyle doesn't want to talk to this guy. That loyal lawyer, though, is not somebody who doesn't know anything about hockey, as most gen- NHL general managers are accusing these agents. They talk about Al Eagleson and, and Bob Wolf and other representatives saying they've never played the game. They don't know what makes a good hockey player and what doesn't. Well, this lawyer is Gary Begg. Gary Begg is a former defenseman with the Canadian national team, and he knows a thing or two about the game. News came out this week that baseball player Kurt Flood had lost his lawsuit against Major League Baseball to get rid of the reserve clause which, of course, would affect all of professional sports. Well, National Hockey League President Clarence Campbell weighed in on that decision, and he said he's greatly relieved by the news that court lost his court battle to strike down that reserve clause. I would say to Clarence Campbell, don't be too smug, Clarence. Kurt isn't resting his case here. This will be appealed all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States if necessary. Here's what Campbell had to say. He says, I am greatly relieved about the improved stability that all professional sport now finds itself in. The decision will lead to stabilize all sports, at least for the time being, since a decision against the clause would have left all sport in a chaotic position. Campbell said that for the time being, the court ruling will put an end to these flamboyant and flippant threats of antitrust action by professional athletes who are way too greedy for their own good. High-profile junior A coach in Alberta, Scotty Monroe, is running a hockey school in Calgary this week, and he's enlisted the help of three professional players to instruct 
at the school. They are Toronto Maple Leafs' Jim Harrison, Minnesota North Stars' fine young defenseman Barry Gibbs, and another fine young defenseman hit this with the Los Angeles Kings, Dale Hoganson. And they are in Calgary this week and actually doing a really good job at this hockey clinic. We have news about Gump Worsley. The roller-poly NHL goalkeeper has signed his 1970-71 contract with the Minnesota North Stars. The deal calls, apparently, for a base salary of $38,000, but the Gumper has some interesting bonus clauses. He'll earn $500 for each win and 250 bucks for every tie. Gump also earns an extra 100 bills for every shutout that he takes part in. Here's an example of how NHL owners, general managers negotiate through the media. They don't like it when players and agents do it, but they take part in this kind of this uh, activity themselves. Boston Bruins head honcho Weston Adams said this week that Derek Sanderson's got no right to whine about needing a big raise. He made $39,000 last season. He shouldn't be complaining about anything. What Weston Adams failed to tell reporters is that Derek Sanderson's base salary, according to his 1969-70 contract, was a whopping $14,000. The rest of the money that Derek earned came from various bonuses paid out by the league for regular season and playoff finishes. The Bruins didn't spend much on Derek Sanderson for what they got, and it looks like they're just trying to bamboozle writers who might be foolish enough to just take what a president says at face value and not really look into what this president's saying. Well, there was an NHL record set this week, although there were no games played, of course. A new record for a salary for a first NHL player was established when the Vancouver Canucks signed their first amateur draft pick, young Dale Talon. He was selected from the Toronto Marlboros of the Ontario Hockey Association Junior A Series immediately after the Buffalo Sabres made Gilbert Perrault the number one selection. While the Canucks would not disclose the exact amount of the deal, Talon's agent, none other than Alan Eagleson, and others hinted that the prized rookie will earn a stipend of something between fifty and $60,000 for his efforts in 1970-71. Eagleson said this is the highest contract ever signed by a first-year player and that includes Eagleson's prized client, Bobby Orr. Talon's salary, if it is $50,000 a year, is, believe it or not, exactly 10 times more than all-time great Fred Cyclone Taylor received when he was the highest player in hockey back in 1910. The Cyclone, by the way, a resident of Vancouver, was on hand for for talent signing ceremony in the West Coast City. That's an amazing uh, amount when you think of it. $50,000, far more than any average player makes for a guy who has played exactly no games in the NHL and really hasn't proven anything. There's some other financial news and it's got nothing to do with players' contracts and it's not good news. The National Hockey League now has another financially troubled franchise to worry about. 
News came out this week that Pittsburgh Penguins owner Donald Parsons had resigned his banking position and in an interview he revealed that the team has been hemorrhaging money for the past two and a half years that he's owned it, losing a total of over $1 million. Parsons says that if these losses continue, he could not rule out selling the team. And he mentioned that the next three to six months would probably provide an indicator of any decision he might make. A major problem for Parsons is that within the next three months, he must reach an agreement with the Mellon Bank of Pittsburgh to repay what remains of a $3.5 million loan used to buy the Penguins Hockey Club. A troubling fact that has uh, surfaced is that recently Parsons' payments on the loan have, quote, lagged. Parsons provides the excuse that hockey's a seasonal sport and there's no income from April to October, except, of course, for people buying season tickets during the offseason. Parsons suggests that all future payments for a hockey team with debt must be structured to account for that lag in uh, income during the summer. Parsons, by the way, and this is uh, something to consider, is in the final year of a three-year pledge he made to keep the Penguins in Pittsburgh. So this situation bears much closer scrutiny. Could it be the Parsons is looking to move the franchise? We know that the city of Baltimore badly wants an NHL team and the National Hockey League governors like the people in Baltimore who would own the team and would love to have a team there. Will they move the Penguins to Baltimore rather than having another Oakland Seals situation dumped in their lap? Stay tuned. We'll be looking at this one. One bit of good news for the uh, Penguins. Uh, They have made arrangements for Channel 53 in Pittsburgh to broadcast a total of 18 Penguins games on television this season. Bobby Orr was making the rounds at various banquets and functions in the last week or so, and he was out on Canada's West Coast this week, speaking in Vancouver and in the surrounding area. Uh, Bobby was interviewed by several reporters, and he talked about uh, a different, uh, several different subjects about losing coach Harry Sinden, with whom Orr was very close. He said he'd missed his former bench boss, but he wished him well. Bobby figures that Sinden's replacement, Tom Johnson, can get the job done with the Bruins, although it might take some time for the team to gel under Tom. Bobby said Johnson's been around Boston for the last four years and he knows all the guys. Bobby said Harry really knew knew the team well and they put out for him, but they think it'll take a little while, but they'll get to know Johnson and they'll put out just as well. Bobby says the players, of course, are professionals. Bobby also told reporters that although he has not spoken personally to defenseman Ted Green, the uh, 
Reports that he's heard about his recovery from that fractured skull, which caused him to miss all of last season, have been very, very, very good. Bobby said that according to what he's been told by team staff and by other players, is that he would be shocked if Ted Green were not in the Bruins lineup on opening night. Of course, since he was in Vancouver, reports were reporters were very interested in learning what or thought about the various Canucks uh, players. The only player he would really comment on was defenseman Gary Doak, who was the first skater taken by the Canucks in the expansion draft. He's a former Bruin, former teammate of Orr's. Orr gave Doak a great endorsement, saying he's a real good hockey player and a really good guy. And if Bobby Orr says you're a really good guy, there's probably something to that. Speaking of being a good guy... Uh, Here's something we wanted to address. It was written by Stan Fischler in one of his columns. We'll quote uh, what Stan wrote. He said, there's at least one non-houseman in the Boston writing fraternity who privately has challenged the or nice guy image, and there are others around who prefer to wait until next season to determine how or reacts to his overdose of adulation before flipping over him. Fischler, of course, in his usual style, doesn't name any of the people who are making these statements other than, as he said, one non-houseman, meaning somebody not in the pocket of Boston management. We don't know who that would be. Columnist Clancy Loranger of the Vancouver Sun took umbrage to that statement, and he had a chance to talk to Orr's agent, Alan Eagleson, about the veracity of that statement by Fischler. Eagleson was quick to point out that Fischler has been trying to make a name for himself by taking the position that Orr is not the person or the player he seems to be. Fischler, it must be remembered, has also written an unauthorized book about Bobby Orr, and he's also been banned permanently from the Boston dressing room. I guess over the long haul, we'll learn who Bobby Orr really is. And of course, that'll tell us a lot about who Stan Fischler is as well. Eagleson, by the way, in Vancouver with Orr, told a story that really hadn't been known too much at this point in time. He related to the Vancouver writers how he actually became associated with Bobby Orr in the first place. And it really didn't seem to be what everyone would think it was. It all started in an Ontario hamlet called McTeer when Bobby was about five years old. No, it wasn't over hockey, at least Bobby's hockey skills. As the town's recreation director, Eagleson played on a softball team on which a teammate was a fella named Doug Orr. Doug was from nearby Perry Sound. Several years later, Doug Orr introduced uh, Eagleson to his son, Bobby, who was a captain and shortstop of a Perry Sound midget baseball team uh, that won an Ontario championship. Baseball, not hockey. It wasn't until later that Eagleson learned that Bobby wasn't a bad hockey player either. That was when Father Doug explained that the Bruins had been contacting him and wanted to move his son up to Junior A Hockey at Oshawa, and maybe Eagleson could give him some advice. 
Now, Eagleson succeeded in getting some concessions for Bobby to play in Oshawa. Some of these concessions consisted of a $200 clothing allowance and an agreement to pay Bobby's university scholarship fees if he should be injured playing junior hockey. And that's how Alan Eagleson and Bobby Orr first got together through the sport of baseball when Doug Orr, Bobby's dad, and Eagleson happened to be teammates in an amateur league. <laughs> Former National Hockey League goalkeeper Paul Bebel passed away this week in Montreal at the age of 51. Paul played for the Canadians, the Chicago Blackhawks, and the Toronto Maple Leafs in the NHL in the 1940s. He became uh, known as a bit of a guy who could be parachuted in when one of the team's regular goalkeepers went off to war. He passed away this week at Frank Selke Sr.'s Rolling Range Farm uh, just outside of Montreal. Now, you might wonder why Paul Bebo, a former player, would be at Frank Selke Sr.'s farm. Well, it turns out that Paul's wife, Suzanne, is Frank Selke's daughter. Paul worked a bit for the Canadians doing various front office jobs thanks to his father-in-law, Frank Selke. Paul Bebo was, again, one of, one of the good guys, as so many hockey players are, and he's going to be missed. We end this week's news and notes with an update on the condition of Pittsburgh Penguins rookie star last year, Michelle Briere, who you remember was injured in that terrible automobile accident last May. Uh, Briere remains in a coma in Notre Dame Hospital in Montreal, and for the first time this week, doctors said very little change in his condition, and they are now admitting that the prognosis for any type of recovery for Michelle is not good. They have said he's had a couple of surgeries. He has been sort of, uh, they describe as semi-conscious, but not really aware of his surroundings unless the external stimulus is very strong. They said he has reacted to commands and to certain people who have been in his room but he has no real level of consciousness. He's unable to see or recognize anything for sure other than they notice some reactions, like we said, to certain strong stimulus, such as the visit of his fiance. It's not good news for Michelle Briere, and we did find out that general manager coach Red Kelly of the Penguins admitted this week for the first time that he is planning to not have Briere around at all this season. Red said that for up until just recently, he had expected that Briere would eventually come around, and while he wouldn't be ready to start the season, he was holding out strong hope that he would be ready to compete with the Penguins at some time before or even during the NHL playoffs. It now appears that is not going to be the case and the Penguins are going to have to make plans to move ahead without Michel Briere. We do have a brief audio clip for you this week, and it's something those of you who are aspiring writers, if you know aspiring writers, uh, 
it's a conversation I had with author Todd Denol, who lives in Coburg, Ontario. And we sat down at the Breakwall Brewing Company, had quite a conversation on a number of hockey subjects. Todd is the author of uh, several hockey books, most notably uh, the book about Jacques Plante, uh, The Man Who Changed the Face of Hockey, the Greatest Game, which uh, highlighted and discussed an entire book about that game on December 31st, 1975, between the Montreal Canadiens and uh, the Russian Red Army. He also wrote Unbreakable, which is a book about the record Wayne Gretzky set of 50 goals and 39 games. And Todd also wrote a book called A Season in Time, which uh, was the story of the 1992-93 NHL season. Uh, Todd had some very interesting comments about aspiring writers who want to get into the business or want to sell a book, and I thought I would just present that this week as kind of a change of pace for what we do in this, this podcast Uh, We talked a lot more, Todd and I did, about hockey 50 years ago, and we'll have some of that in a later show. But here's Todd Denol's thought on how he got his first book published, uh, and he had some very interesting contacts with people from the hockey world of 50 years ago. Here's Todd Denol. So your first book was going to be about the great Jacques Plante. And you say that the main reason you you uh, chose Jock was because you didn't see any other books. Yeah, that's still kind of how I do it. Okay, that's good. That, so I mean, I don't have. And again, it's each their own. I have. I don't have. I have little interest in writing a book that's been written before, or it's been done before. Well, I can do better. I can find this like. It would be if somebody like somebody were to approach me, say for example, now and say, "Listen, I'd like to work on a book about Gordie Howe." Mm-hmm. I'd be like, "Okay, fine. What's the angle? You know, what's the angle? Yeah. Because a straight biography's been done, uh, this has been done, or that's been done. Like, okay, what's the angle? And again, hey, maybe there's a great angle on Gordie that hasn't been done yet. I'm not saying there isn't, but to me, it's got to be something that has a little bit of freshness to it. So with Plant. As I said, there had been the two earlier books, but even the Andy O'Brien book was pretty dated at that point. And, of course, when the Andy O'Brien book came out, there were still guys playing without a mask on. True. So there was perspective, and then part of it was, as I'd found, you gotta, it makes it so much easier if you're the biographer, if the people that you're doing are interesting. Mm-hmm. That saves half your writing. If the person is interesting and unique and different... We can't make that up. And all of those things would describe Jacques Plante. All of those things describe him. And I was very fortunate at that time that the one thing I did have, like I didn't have any ins to the book industry, but I had an in to somebody who knew John Bellabo. Mm-hmm. And part of the thing was like, well, okay, if I'm going to do this, I better do it now. And it, it sounds kind of sad to say this, but unfortunately it's the reality, is those guys at that time, we're talking now 10 years back, were getting older. Mm-hmm. You know, Jacques, uh, Jacques Plant had passed away in 86, but you know, Beliveau was getting older, Henry Richard, Dickie Moore, guys who played with them. And then there was even guys who were already gone, The Rocket, Doug Harvey. Right. So you start going to yourself, okay, I mean, a good example at the time was, you know, Pierre Pilat had played with him in Buffalo mm-hmm. when he was in the AHL. Um, 
you know, Andy Bathgate had taken the shot that led to the mask going exactly. on. Andy Bathgate yeah. was still uh, there. Was all these people who were still there, and you go, "Oof, now's the time." If you don't do this now, or you wait, you're going to miss out on things that you won't be able to get later on. Mm-hmm. So that was part of it, and of course, I had an in with Bellavo, which helped. So I, I got to meet Mr. Bellavo, and that's a whole other story, um, because him and I, I, I got to know him quite well, talked to him quite a bit, to the point that eventually he wrote the foreword for the book. Mm-hmm. Um, he was amazing, and then it was funny, because once you would contact other people and say that you had talked to Jean Bellavo, it was like you had kind of, um, and this is critical for a first-time author, you had some cred. Right. So, like, okay, you talk to Bellavo, then you're able to talk to Henry Richard. Then you put down on your things, or you'd phone people and go, I've talked to Bellavo and Henry Richard and Dickie Moore. And you just, if once you're able to add these people, all of a sudden the next thing you know, you're talking to Elmer Locke or you're talking to Andy Bathgate. Or mm-hmm. um, for those of you who are Toronto fans, you know, one night you're sitting there and your phone rings and it's Dave Keon. Or the next day it's Daryl Sittler. Because you had that. Uh, to a first-time author, that little—that's the most critical part—is why would these guys talk to you? And Bellavo having his name on it gave it a legitimacy that maybe I wouldn't have had, obviously, without. Exactly. So that was Todd Deno, author Todd Deno, talking about he getting his start in writing hockey books. That, by the way, that conversation took place at the Breakwall Brewing Company in Port Coburn, Ontario, uh, one of our sponsors, and we had a great afternoon there discussing hockey books, hockey in general, hockey history. That's Todd Deno. So that's the show, the show this week, folks, and what did we learn from this week's show well we learned there was a lot more hockey news going on in the uh, early part of august than we actually anticipated bobby orr was in the news and he did a number of interviews in vancouver and we got bobby's views on some various subjects and we learned the surprising story of how bobby and alan eagleson actually first got together we learned about the contract signed by another Alan Eagleson con client, and that was Dale Talon, and the amount that Dale would be paid would eclipse even the salary that Bobby Orr earned in his first contract. And we learned the identity of the new coach of the LA Kings, and no surprise, given who the general manager is, the new coach of the LA Kings was the general manager of the LA Kings, Larry Regan. Next week, we have some more news as we move closer to training camp openings. We'll find out that the Buffalo Sabres finally established a farm team in what some people called the unlikeliest of places. We have some news on a plan to fly fans from Edmonton to each Vancouver Canucks home game. And we'll try and get to the bottom of reports that Bruins captain Johnny Busick suffered a serious leg injury when he fell out of a boat. And we're going to have much, much more. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole, and I can't thank him enough for all the hard work he puts into this. The Rural Alberta Advantage, a Toronto indie rock group, provides our intro and our exit music, and if you ever get a chance to see them perform live, don't miss it. They put on a great high-energy show. Other musical pieces and sound effects are by our producer, Andy Cole. Our research comes from files from the Toronto Star, Toronto Global 
Mail, and of course the many publications found at newspapers.com. You can find us on Twitter at at Hockey50Years and on Facebook under 50 Years Ago in Hockey. And our WordPress site is Hockey50YearsAgo.com. And we're now on YouTube as well. Thanks again to everyone who tunes in every week to this show. We really enjoy bringing this to you. We have lots of good plans for the upcoming season. And on that note, we will see you next time. When the ice